Well, good evening. It's a delight to be with you all. And let me say once again on behalf of uh, my own congregation how grateful we are for the witness that you all bear. We remember you fondly and seek to remember you before the throne of grace at home. Thank you to the consistory and to Pastor Elshout for the privilege to come and labor among you again over the last couple of days. I have very fond, very affectionate uh, memories of my times with you over these several occasions. Amazing to look at the Lord's faithfulness to you uh, since the first trip that I came and uh, feel very much uh, a deep love and gratitude for, for all of you. So thank you for your kind hospitality uh, to me. Well, this evening, in keeping with the, the request of the consistory, we are going on a brief uh, jaunt or journey into a very far away and very foreign country, uh, the country, if you will, of, of the ancient church. So distant from us in time, dif- distance from us in, in terms of ge- geography and, uh, and circumstances and so forth, and yet so much for us to glean from that. We think of the early church, of course, we think of a mixed bag, right? There are good things and bad things. There's some bright spots, there's warts and difficulties as well as Reformed Protestants. We often, when we think of the ancient church, we think especially of the achievements in terms of orthodox doctrines. We have our creeds and confessions from the early councils. We think of the doctrine of God and the Trinity and the person of Christ and so on. But that's not where we're going this evening. Those things get uh, more uh, attention than than the the topic that we're taking up this evening. We want to focus on some of the lessons that we can draw with regards to godly living from the ancient church. This will be less familiar terrain in some ways uh, for for many of us, but it's appropriate. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, remember them, goes on, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. So it's urging us to remember, indeed requiring us, to remember past leaders who've spoken God's Word. And notice that it says, and in the Greek, it's, it's to scrutinize closely the, the achievement of their day-to-day behavior that's manifested throughout the, their whole life. And so, in thinking about the ancient church, where we are remembering such godly teachers and discovering, I think, for our own edification, some guides for our our own view of what biblical piety uh, includes. And the believers in the first two centuries um, provide models, I think, especially for what it means to be a Christian in a hostile society, right? A situation that many believers face uh, today. It's a story of how God protected and purified and chastened and provided and strengthened uh, his, his believing uh, people. So this is obviously a vast topic, enormous topic, where we're not going to attempt to cover even an overview of it. We're just going to wade into the water a little, get our toes wet, and uh, appreciate some of the things that we can glean uh, from this. They had their failures, but they also reveal some of our own failures when we uh, study their lives and circumstances. And all of this, I think, aims to, to really encourage us, right? The, the, the stories that we read in biography and history of the early church fathers help us to persevere in our own faith during 
tough times and inspire us to live godly lives. Paul says again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. So I want to begin with an account, one of my favorite accounts, of one of my favorite figures from, from the ancient church. I've listed a whole bunch here on the right-hand side that's more just to kind of trigger, trigger your, your brain with name recognition. You, when you see them all together, some of the, some of the significant uh, fathers, um, you'll be able to connect some familiarity. But I want to begin with um, Basil of Caesarea, or sometimes called Basil the Great. It was the year 372, and the Roman emperor Valens was lending his support to the heretical adherents of Arianism. So these are the folk that denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the emperor had set about persecuting, banishing, even martyring some of the faithful pastors who were holding to the biblical orthodoxy of the Council of Nicaea, which you're familiar with from, from the Creed. And in 372, Valens set his crosshairs on Caesarea, the region of Cappadocia, which is now uh, modern central Turkey, and specifically on one lone figure, a belligerent bishop who had defied the emperor and refused his demands to cooperate with Arians. That man's name was Basil of Caesarea, 4th century patristic, one of the three Cappadocian fathers, along with Gregory Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa. So the emperor summoned Basil to appear before the prefect Modestus, this is like a, a political underling, lieutenant, if you will, to answer for his actions. And so you can picture it. I mean, you can almost imagine it. On one side, uh, you see the, the pageantry of royal opulence and of worldly power. And on the other side, you have a pastor dressed in a plain, worn-out tunic with a leather girdle and simple shoes. Modestus demanded that Basil should explain how he could dare, as no other dared, to resist and oppose so great a potentate and to refuse to respect the religion of his sovereign when all others submitted. Basil replied, because it is not the will of my real sovereign. Modestus was provoked to anger, and in his fury, he shouted at Basil, What? Have you no fear of my authority and the resources of my power? Basil asked what power that might be. At an effort of intimidation, he growled the power of confiscation, banishment, torture, and death. Basil replied, have you no other threat, for none of these can reach me. Modestus was stunned, blinking in bewilderment, and asked, how is that? Basil replied along these lines, as to confiscation, I own nothing. All that I have is the Lord's, and what little is given to my stewardship, these few rags in my books, all that I possess, you are welcome to demand of me. Banishment is impossible because I am not confined to anywhere here, and the whole earth is the Lord's. I am a pilgrim and a citizen of another world. As for torture, what hold can that have on one whose body belongs to the Lord and who is nigh dead and who will soon be resurrected? And death, ha, huh, 
Death is my benefactor. You can merely send me sooner to my God for whom I live and for whom I am prepared to die and to whom I have been long hasting. Augustus was dumbfounded and could only mutter that no man had ever spoken to him in that way. To which Basil famously replied, Well then, perhaps you have never met a true bishop. If you had, in his defense, he would have used precisely the same language, which was obviously a dig at the Arians. Well, I recount this story because it illustrates the character of the men and times that we are reflecting upon this evening. Basil was one who lived under the power of another world. And it shows how one living under the power of another world, how living under the power of another world liberates us from the things of this world. Now, in terms of the context and in terms specifically of society, the the period of the patristic age, the early church, spans, if if we take, as many do, from uh, the the days immediately after the apostles to around the year uh, 500. That period spans, um, in terms of society, the pinnacle of the Roman Empire to the demise and collapse of the Roman Empire. So it's at its zenith at the beginning of the Patristic Age, and it is in ruins at the end of the Patristic Age. So at the end, for example, Augustine would be the name you're probably most familiar with. He's living toward the end of that that period. And uh, before his death, the Vandals, a Germanic tribe that had converted to Arianism, invaded Roman Africa, where he lived. And they besieged Hippo in the spring of 430, when Augustine had entered his final illness. Spending his his final days in prayer and repentance, he requested the penitential Psalms of David to be hung on his walls so he could read them and upon which which led him to weep freely and constantly. He directed the library of the church in Hippo and all the books therein should be carefully preserved. He died on the 28th of August, 430. Shortly after his death, the vandals lifted the siege of Hippo but they returned soon after and burned the city. They they destroyed all but Augustine's cathedral and library, which they left untouched. So you can get a sense of the span here of what's happening in the background. So with regards to the church context, we're from the days of basically the death of John, uh, the Apostle John, around the year 100 probably, through the year 500. You can divide that period into basically two overarching uh, sections or, or periods, and I've, I've given them to you here. You have the first period, basically 90, the year 90 to 313, the anti-Nicene period. This was largely a period of increasing persecution. The second period is number three on the board, 325 to 500, the post-Nicene period, and that would have been the period of kind of the, the golden age of the great theologians that we are familiar with and read and ministers have to study. In the middle, you have the hinge, what I'm calling the hinge. Basically, uh, the transition from 313 to 325, the Edict of Milan in 313 is when Christianity was formally legalized in the Roman Empire, so it was made legal. And then 325, you're familiar with, the Council of of Nicaea. So that's sort of the, the hinge, if you will. We're gonna draw lessons from both of these periods because they both had their own dangers, times of persecution, have their own 
challenges and times of uh, wild pros prosperity, which is really what the Nicene period largely was characterized by, had also a number of its own uh, challenges. And really this period of church history is, is, is um, less familiar to us than the Reformation era, post-Reformation era, and some of the times since then. But it's especially helpful to us because there's many points of connection with our own circumstances at present. Now, there are points of both similarity and dissimilarity to our time and circumstances. But at the end of the day, Paul tells us, there hath no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. And so we know, before we open a book, that the ancient church struggled like we do amid the pressures of life, ministry, society, and sin. They had to wrestle through naughty questions and seeking to hold fast to the truth of Scripture and preserve it, which was grueling at times. They faced opposition from the world. They sought to reach the world with the gospel while preventing the influx of the world's ways into the church. They had to face dangers arising within the church itself that threatened to rend it. In other words, they lived under many of the same pressures, just like us, which means we can glean lessons from, from uh, what we can learn from them. It was a transitional period. Um, the church went from a time, as I said, of intense persecution at the beginning to wild popularity later. Uh, both of these periods, um, significant events took place. It was a formative period. You know, they're digging deeply in the Scriptures. They're having to work hard to know exactly what they believe about the Bible and about God and the person of Christ. And they didn't do that with the luxury of all sorts of comfortable circumstances. They hammered out these biblical truths with outside societal pressures and in the midst of internal divisions within, within the church. And so, there's much there for us, I think, to, to benefit from. But really, in your study of this period, one thing remains prominent above all others, and that is that you find men and women who loved intensely the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they learned to live, and in some cases die, for their attachment and allegiance to Him. They loved His Word. They understood that sound doctrine was indispensable to the gospel. And so they labored to preach, defend, model, spread the glorious gospel of Christ's saving grace for sinners. The first lesson that I want us to focus on, and there's several parts to this. First of all, what do we learn about living in a hostile world? Living in a hostile world. Polycarp, which is the first name on the, the board there, is one of the earliest recorded martyrs after the apostles. Uh, the Roman Empire had required unqualified allegiance to the empire itself. And this included requiring all the members of society to burn incense in religious devotion to the emperor. Well, Polycarp, along with other Christians, refused to do this. So he's arrested and he's taken into the arena to be publicly executed. And there he was given an opportunity to denounce Christ and pledge allegiance to the state. Polycarp is recorded as saying on the day of his death, Eighty and six years I have served him, referring to Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. 
but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. So Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. On his farewell, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. You see, what had happened is the church began to be viewed by outsiders as a separate religious institution. So it was no longer viewed as in the early days by some as sort of an offshoot of the Jews. But on the other hand, Christians were seen as separate from the Greco-Roman society as well, and sometimes viewed as a threat to the fabric of the empire. And so persecution arose, and it spread, and it was sustained, and there was a shift to opposition primarily from the Roman government. As Christians came out of worship on Sunday, any Roman soldier had the right to draw a sword and place it on the neck of a believer and ask them, is Jesus Christ the Lord? Roman society considered the correct answer to be, Caesar is the Lord. His name was on the coins. His name was worshiped. His statue was in the marketplace. There was only one Lord in society, it was the state, Caesar alone. And so they refused to do so, of course. But there were also threats even from within the church. You have the example later in 361 uh, to 363, you have Julian the Apostate who became emperor, notable philosopher, author in Greek, and so on. He was raised as a, as in a Christian home with the Christian religion and rejected it and began to promote the pagan religion. So the Christianity had been legalized. It was kind of the, 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 the religion of the empire uh, after the, the period of Constantine. And <clears throat> he tried to bring a resurgence of, of paganism. And as a result, he intensified the attacks or renewed the attacks on Christianity. And yet the Lord here uh, overthrew this opposition as well. It's an interesting story, but we have to be mindful of our time. I'm going to skip that. Persecution was a living reality for the church, especially during those first couple hundred years after the death of the apostles, continuing off and on. And you see this, of course, in the New Testament itself. Paul told Timothy that all who live godly will suffer persecution. And while initially this came from the Jews, latterly and chiefly it came from the government of the Roman Empire. Christianity was first pronounced an illegal religion by the state during the reign of Trajan in AD 98. And there were only two there were two periods of full scale, that is to say, empire-wide persecution, Decius 250, around 250, and the Diocletian persecution after the year 300. And I could list off a number of these men and the the emperors under which they died. I won't take time to do it, but. Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement of Alexandria, and on and on and on it goes. You know, they all died under different emperors during this time. Diocletian persecution, the last wave, was the most fierce of all others. So we're talking 303 to 311. Churches torn to the ground, Bibles burned in the marketplace, Christians removed from public office, requiring sacrifice to the gods, and innumerable numbers tortured and killed. The question is, what do we make of all this? What was exactly the cause behind it? 
And the primary reason seems to stem from the fact that Christians lived in biblical separation from the ways of Roman society. They refused to participate in the immoral pleasures of those around them, the theater, gladiatorial games, and so on. They insisted on the supremacy of Jesus Christ as the only Lord, contra the claims of the emperor. They refused to sacrifice to the gods, which was considered a civil, a political duty for the prosperity of the empire. So Christians were deemed non-patriotic. Christianity was also non-Greek in the sense that it claimed all people for its adherence. Furthermore, they were falsely accused due to misrepresentations of their religion. So here's three examples. Christians were accused of being atheists. You say, how in the world do you get that? They did not believe in the gods. And they had no physical representations of God, right? Statues, pictures, and so on, to whom they would bow down. So they considered them atheists, right? Where's your God? You have none. It's like the Psalms. They say unto us, where now is thy God? Our God is in the heavens, the Psalm says, right? It's that same picture. Secondly, they were accused of cannibalism, which was a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper, feeding upon the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another example is that they were accused of incest because they called one another brother and sister and greeted one another with a holy kiss. And all of this, we see God's preserving grace in the midst of peril. Why? Because of unqualified allegiance to Christ above all. And the blessing of God for them was not equated with material prosperity. They would oppose the sins of society, and they knew that persecution only aided the purity of the church. It helps us, I think, to, to begin to redefine in our comfortable age, the da- uh, to redefine danger in Christ's service, danger in light of the resurrection. We're told not to fear those who kill the body. Understanding the doctrine of the resurrection leads, as it did with Basil, to the Christian saying, is that all you've got? The most you can do is kill me. Well, if our only hope is in this life, then we're to be most pitied. But for the Christian, it's not. You consider the ultimate expression of this, the matter of martyrdom. Ancient church has a lot of stories of of martyrdom. And understandably, the idea of martyrdom makes most Christians queasy. But really, it is the culmination and the capstone of a life of self-denial, a refuse to hold on even to one's own life in the service of the Savior. And so we look at the ancient church, and, and sometimes there are those who look at the ancient church, and it seems as if they're glorifying martyrdom, or that there's some, there are pursuits of martyrdom, and certainly there are cases of that, and we immediately dismiss them, even disdain them, due to what we perceive as extremes. But their imbalances on one end actually expose, on the other side, the greater, our own greater extremes on the other side. The truth is, they were actually closer 
to the truth than we are because they saw something we don't see. They could see the unseen. They had a truth in hand, and at times they misused it. While our hand is empty, not grasping the truth at all. What do I mean? They read, believed, and absorbed Hebrews 11 verse 32. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They could see that. They could taste it, as it were. They desired that better resurrection. They valued it far above the price tag of death. They said, in essence, this, you know, martyred for that, for a better resurrection, this is too good to be true. And so they went to death thinking, I am so worthy of this privilege of giving my life for the Savior. Right? They saw Christ and followed Christ all the way to the scaffold. Go back to that Hebrews 11, verses 37 and 38. They were stoned, speaking of the Old Testament saints. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. How incredibly true. The world was not worthy of them because they lived above the world while in it. They were living for another world. To see clearly leads to saying what an incredible privilege it would be to be called by Christ, to be allowed by Christ, to offer my life for the Redeemer, and to be gifted by grace alone with an even better resurrection with which to glorify God. While not seeking it, I wish the Lord permitted me such service. I realize that you may not be there right now, and I do not intend to unduly burden any. But can you at least see it? Oh, that you would be enabled, that we would be enabled to get there. It would be liberating to be so consumed with the all-absorbing sight of Christ that it squeezes out all of self, loosening even our grip on life itself. I mean, after all, parents will take crazy risks and endanger their lives to save their children from harm's way. The question is, for what are you willing to die? And I mean that. I actually want you to answer the question in your own heart and mind. For what are you willing to die? Because that is what you will live for. You think, well, what about fears? You know, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do that. And the usual answer is, well, God will give you grace in the moment, and that is true. But there's more than that. A life, a life lived seeing the unseen prepares for dying seeing the unseen. Right? You think of Stephen's martyrdom, Acts 7. His face was shining like an angel. His eyes were already glued on Christ in heaven. He was given a sight of it at the end. But my friends... You listen to the speech that precedes it, he's already been there for a long time, long before he came to the point of being stoned. You think, well, this, this, is this extreme? I mean, is this reckless? The answer is we never lose. Even if we lose life, we gain it. Losing our life is not just martyrdom, of course. It is losing what the, what the world deems a good life. 
My point is that seeing clearly the resurrection changes everything. And it did for the ancient church. And there are hundreds and thousands of accounts that demonstrate the evidence. And you see it throughout history. You think of the 19th century, there's a Scottish Presbyterian, John G. Payton, uh, who went to be a missionary to the Outer Hebrides. Fantastic biography. If you haven't read this, this is one of, yeah, to read to your children. It's, it's, a, it's a, an amazing biography, the autobiography of John G. Payton. But he goes back to Britain you know, at one point, or he's fixing to leave for Britain, or leave Britain to go to the Outer Hebrides, and some gentleman comes up to him protesting that he can't do that. And the man says, you will be eaten by cannibals. If you go there to, Ve- to Vanuatu, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And John G. Payton said, you know, in a few years, you're going to die and be buried, and you're going to be eaten by worms. I care not whether it be cannibals or worms taking the gospel to the South Pacific. He could see clearly the unseen, and he lived for another world. Second area of, of help, I think, is the, the way in which they were, the, the saturation in Scripture, the way in which they were sap, saturated in Scripture. You know, we, we're not the first generation to read the Bible. Uh, these, these early Christians wrestled with the Scriptures just like us. They memorized enormous portions of Scripture, devoted extensive time to deep study, Right? They preached sermons, wrote commentaries, defended orthodoxy, articulated biblically faithful statements of doctrine in the form of our historic creeds and confessions of faith, and so on and so forth. Perhaps you know Spurgeon said one time, it seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the, what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves should think so little of what He has revealed to others. Is it not rather foolish of us if we, were dis- if we disregard all this, choosing instead to remain ignorant of the treasures of spiritual wisdom that God has given to our fathers. Surely we should desire to stand on the shoulders of these and our Reformation, post-Reformation men of faith who have gone before us. We should learn as much as we possibly can from their study, meditation, insights, and exposition of Scripture while testing everything by Scripture alone, and keeping what is faithful. But their example of how they received the Word with all readiness of mind, like the Bereans, search the Scriptures daily. It's amazing to, to see, like you'll read some of the, the church fathers, and they're just quoting enormous passages all over the place of Scripture, you know, just qu- quoting them through the, 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 the you know, reading on a page, and there's just strung together all sorts of passages that are, that are uh, pieced you know, beautifully together. They, they, they took seriously for their children the importance of laying up enormous portions of the Bible in their hearts and minds. Basil, who I opened, the introduction that I opened with, uh, devoted his, his life to the Lord. He abandoned his, his legal and teaching career. And in a letter, he, he describes uh, some of what happens. He said, I had wasted much time on follies, and spent nearly all of my youth in vain labors and devotion to the teachings of a wisdom that God has made foolish. Suddenly, I awoke out of a deep sleep. I beheld the wonderful light of the gospel truth, and I recognized the nothingness of the wisdom of the princes of this world. You have, for example, Chrysostom, right? Calvin quotes him quite a bit. Uh, second probably only to Augustine. 
and he's called the golden-tongued preacher, right? Amazing preacher, full of the scriptures, great biographies, biographies by him, even by reformed men that have written on him that you can, you can read. And the boldness that he had, I mean, he came to Constantinople, which is now modern-day Istanbul, and he was shocked at the spiritual laxity among the ministers and the high-ranking members of the church. The wife of the emperor, Eudoxia, displayed a conceit and vanity and in seizing power. And there's all sorts of things. She executed her chief, the chief advisor of her husband. She, she took to wearing lavish purple clothes, coins made in her own image, so on and so forth. John got in the pulpit and preached against the, 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 the royal house, if you will, against the pride and extravagance, similar to Paul, really. The people loved him. The leaders hated him. And so they used all sorts of things against him, stripping him of everything. He was exiled. She you know, sent him away. And then the next night after he was exiled, an earthquake rocked the city. And Eudoxia feared divine displeasure. So she's scared that God is after her. She brought John back. But then she had a silver statue of herself put in front of his church. So he preached against that. And on and on he goes. They tried to bar him from preaching and leading worship. He absolutely ignored it. Tried to bar him from entering the church. He carried on. Finally, the troops came in and uh, broke in. He was brutally dragged and removed into remote exile. Frail, old, broken health. He died. But he was a man committed to the Scriptures. He preached consecutively through the Bible through massive portions of the Scriptures, training the people in what the Lord said. You have examples like Origen, you know, one of the early, really brilliant theologians. He has lots of problems too, but um, you, you look at the, the upbringing that he had. Um, his father, Leonides, had him memorize passages of Scripture from the time he was super young, filling his head with loads and loads and loads of Bible. And it's, it's, it's really, um, it is evident by his ability to recite extended passages of Scripture later on in his, in his writings. When he was not yet 17, uh, the emperor ordered the Roman citizens to openly, uh, that who openly practiced Christianity to be executed. So Leonides, his father, who was an open Christian and devout Christian, was arrested, thrown in prison. And we're told that Origen wanted to turn himself into the authorities so that he would be executed along with his father. His mother hid all of his clothes so that he was unable, so that he was unable to go out of the house to the authorities. Couldn't turn himself in, in other words. But he too, after living a long life, died at 69, died of, of again, uh, from really the results of extensive torture. So the, the point is, these people are saturated with Scripture, and um, you'll appreciate this. They were also very, very, very passionate about the singing of the Psalms. So the ancient church sang the Psalms a ton. I'll give you a quote here from, this is the fourth century. It's a, a writer says, in the churches there are vigils, and David, referring to the Psalms, is first and middle and last. In singing of early morning hymns of David, David is first, middle, and last. In the tents at funeral processions, David is first, middle, and last. Houses of virgins, there is weaving, and David is first, middle, and last. What a thing of wonder. 
Many who have not even made their first attempt at reading know all of David by heart and recite him in order. Yet it is not only in the cities and the churches that he is so prominent. On every occasion and with, all, with people of all ages, even in the fields and deserts and stretching into uninhabited wasteland, he rouses sacred choirs to God with great zeal. And it goes on. In fact, at one point, it was a requirement for presbyters. One of the qualifications for being a presbyter is that you had to have memorized the entire Psalter. And so this wasn't something just a select few people uh, did or were, were familiar with. You have people like Athanasius, whose name you'll know. Uh, he writes a beautiful piece on, on the Psalms. He says, uh, a quotation from that, in them, says Athanasius, you find portrayed man's whole life, the emotions of his soul, the frames of his mind. We cannot conceive of anything richer than the book of Psalms. If you need penance, if anguish or temptation has befallen you, if you have escaped persecution or oppression, or immersed in deep affliction concerning each and all, you may find instruction and state to God in the words of the Psalter. Another element that is connected with the ancient church is that of self-denial. Remember Jesus, this is one of the most fundamental things in terms of the message Jesus gave to his disciples, that you're to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So self-denial, and then it ends up coming up through all the epistles and all the rest of the New Testament. The apostles are weaving it into what they're saying. Well, to deny ourselves is to affirm Christ. These are two sides of the same coin. The gospel brings with it a call to die. And so often this is the snag for many people, the cost, the cost of following Christ. Yes, the price tag is so often the snag, isn't it? Christ said it would be so. But this is only because we are looking on the seen, not looking by faith on the unseen. We never lose anything for Christ. Self-denial, the losses to ourself, Christ promises will be gain. And so the apparent cost brings far greater gain. The call to die is actually a call to truly live. And so the Christian life demands self-denial not self-promotion, not self-gratification, not self-indulgence. It calls us to forget self because we are lost in the all-absorbing focus on Christ alone. We are to make Christ all or nothing. We're to strive to make so much of Christ, His interests and kingdom, that you squeeze out all else, leaving nothing for self leaving no trace of self, even if that means dying in obscurity and poverty, as many of those in the ancient church did. It means sacrificial service, doing what is difficult, not what is easy. It means habitually choosing, even embracing opportunities to do what no one else wants to do and doing the difficult. It means learning to get comfortable in the uncomfortable. Because what happens is we, we so often bail at the first signs of difficulty in prayer. Yeah, we're having struggles. We just we stop. 
in service. There are things we're seeking to do in serving the Lord. Difficult, we stop. In suffering, the Lord takes us into afflictions, and we, we throw in the towel, as it were, at some point, in all forms of sacrifice. But the Bible calls us, and the ancient church illustrates how we are to situate ourselves under the weight of the cross, to acclimate to breathing the atmosphere of austerity. After a few days of heat rash in the tropics, your body begins to adjust. You have all sorts of examples of this really close, close at hand. Those who, some of our elite warriors, who are accustomed to living, even thriving, under enormous physical demands, so that the previous pressures, which at one time seemed overwhelming, now seem inconsequential or trivial. How much tr more true is this of the soldiers of Christ in spiritual exercise of our souls, in service to the great King? Paul says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Right? Our habit, our instinct, our gut reaction is to choose to do the difficult to choose self-sacrifice. This is, I think, one of the things that sets apart the ancient church. They don't cave when everybody else does. You know, you think about how often have you thought to yourself, well, secretly, I'm thinking about pulling an all-nighter to wrestle with the Lord in prayer, to lay bare his arm in converting your friends and family. The point is, that kind of question, is that kind of question even in the orbit of our thinking? Right? We're to live for another world, to live, to live, live for the, the tangible advance of the eternal kingdom. All too many focus on family, self, job, building our own little fiefdom and kingdom. But you can't advance Christ's kingdom and your own personal interests at the same time. You can't sprint in opposite directions at the same time. One advances at the expense of the other. All of our interests are to be absorbed in Christ's interests. We're to seek first His kingdom. And our whole life's to be riveted on that. We're to subordinate everything in our life to that one aim. So that we're asking in all the different circumstances in which we find ourselves, what in this situation or in this decision, what, what today best serves this aim regarding Christ's kingdom? It's liberating to be consumed with Christ and to cast self aside. No man can serve two masters. The ancient church shows us that we are pilgrims. As Paul said, as Christ taught us, as the Old Testament illustrates, our citizenship is in heaven. The ancient church was very different than our own in this respect. Too many today are living out of a burn barrel. So they stuff it full of all of their most prized possessions, then they upgrade to a bigger burn barrel but at the end of the day, Second Peter tells us, your stuff's going to burn up. 
And it would do us well if sometimes we stood before the car we like or some possession or whatever else it is to stand before it and picture it as an ash heap. Visually picture it that way in order to bring us back to a sense of, of reality. The Lord promises eternal rewards that are proportionate to our sacrificial labors here. That's, that's true with regards to service. It's true with regards to suffering. It's true with regards to sanctification. That's why Jesus can tell you, lay up for yourselves treasures. He doesn't say, don't lay up treasure. He actually says the opposite. He says, lay up for yourself treasures. He's saying, the desire for riches is not the problem. It's the kind of riches, heavenly ones. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, seeking, just as Jesus told his disciples, they're bickering among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He never goes and rebukes them and says, shame on you for wanting to be the greatest in the kingdom. Do you ever notice that? He doesn't rebuke them for that. He corrects their concept of greatness. He says, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Go be servant of all, which is to say, go pursue greatness. So likewise, he tells us, lay up treasures in heaven. Lay not up treasures on earth. You think of the ancient church with all their losses and all their struggles and all their difficulties, but the fact is everyone dies in physical poverty because you can't take any of it with you. You lose it all. Your true wealth is determined not by what you have five seconds before you die, but by what you have five seconds after you die. Are you rich now? Are you rich toward God? What treasure is stored up beyond this life? So if you're going to be bereft of everything when you die, then if the Lord calls you to it, why not unload it for Christ before you die? This leads us to changing the question from how much can I keep to how much can I give for the kingdom? How much can I do for the Lord and do without regarding myself? But it takes us even beyond that, doesn't it? Because when you're reading these biographical and historical accounts of the ancient church, it takes us beyond the concept of giving up and sacrificing things at all. When we see clearly the heavenly inheritance, the rich reward, the imperishable treasure, we see that our giving is not ultimately sacrifice at all. It is an investment that yields incalculable returns. It amounts to exchanging gravel for gold. It loosens our grip on what is perishing and tightens our grip on what is permanent. The missionary Jim Elliott, 20th century, wasn't reformed, but what he said here was absolutely right. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. This can be applied in so many different ways. But for the ancient church, there was a sense of detachment. The words of Paul, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. They that buy as though they possess not. They that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. 
problem is not having possessions, of course. It is having possessions without being possessed by them. <clears throat> this becomes evident. Cars damaged, you know, and someone wants to give a big lecture about how kids need to respect property and it costs money and we need to be responsible and it's not good stewardship and so on and so forth. And that's appropriate. That's right. I'm not dismissing that. But wouldn't we, don't we view it a little differently if when you see that same car years later in the junkyard and you realize perspective. Right? There's a difference between deprivation and detachment. I say that because you can be poor and not be detached from the things of this world. And you can be phenomenally wealthy and be detached from the things of this world. But you can also think you're detached and not be, which is why sometimes God has to take things away to show us to loosen our grip on this world and to tighten our, tighten our grip on what matters most. Whether God gives us a small amount, medium amount, large amount of wealth, whether He withholds it, we're focused on laying up a better treasure in heaven. You know, some, some will say, and maybe you're one of them, if the Lord gives me this job, or if the Lord gives me this house, or if He gives me this money, then I'll use it for His kingdom. I'll be able to use it for His kingdom. Maybe so. But the question is, do you use what you have now for the kingdom? If not, then who are you fooling? Because if not now, you won't do it then when you have something else. And so the early church viewed themselves as funnels, their life, their time, their body, their gifts, their resources. It was all used for the glory of the Lord. They were a funnel through which things poured in order to be um, invested in the kingdom of, of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. So... Yeah, self-denial is living for another world. So, to borrow an expression from athletics, the goal is to leave absolutely everything on the field. In other words, to give all, to die empty with no reserves, nothing left to expend, have spent everything, our strength, our power, everything we have, withholding nothing from Christ, His cause, His kingdom, to have exchanged all of our resources in this world for far greater ones in the world to come. And the way in which we are motivated to do this is the sight of Christ, is the sight of the glory of His kingdom, is the, is the meditating on heaven to come, on the reward that the Lord has given. We have to be standing above the world, living outside the world, not being of the world, if we have any hope of transforming it. And so in this area, like with saturation of Scripture, and as with living in hostile times, the, the, the mantra today, the call today that you get even among allegedly reformed writers always tends to call for less, not more, to reduce, to rest, to chill. You know, I've, I've heard a reformed minister one time um, telling the story of John Welsh, 
of Ayr, who is um, a Scottish Presbyterian, and the story is familiar to you. You know, it's, it's, it's how he would devote up to eight hours in prayer, and he would go into the, into the other room in the frigid cold, and he'd be praying for his congregation. His wife would come in and try to coax him back to bed. She'd cover him in a blanket, and she'd say, you know, John, you need to come back to bed. And he'd say, no, I have 3,000 souls that I'm accountable for, and I don't know how it is with many of them. Right, so the story is being told. And then um, immediately what follows is an exhortation not to try to pray for an hour. Right, s- someone saying, okay, here's the story, but don't try to be like that. Don't try to do that. Don't, don't try to pray for an hour. I mean, that's, I mean, this is absurd to me. Why, why use the story if, if that's what we're going to conclude, right? There's, the Bible calls for maximalism. We pray, read, evangelize, pour ourselves out for the kingdom more. Where can we increase effort to maximize things for Christ? You know, in Acts 6-4, ministers or apostles are saying they want to give, give ourselves continually to the Word, to prayer and to the Word. We need to take this more seriously. I think we would take it more seriously if we took it more literally. We can measure it. How much time is given today to prayer? How how much time, I mean, like literally, minutes, given to the Word? What percentage of our hours? What we need is hunger pains for more of Christ. Right? It's hunger pains for Christ that fuel these pursuits, prayer, meditation, psalm singing, scripture, memory, you know, laboring for the kingdom, evangelism, working in cause of missions, all of this is driven by hunger pains for more of Christ that lead us to saying, what maximizes the most for the Lord? What lasts? That guides our investments. Sometimes sleep is what is needed. Other times, no sleep. Sometimes eating well, other times fasting. Sometimes saving money in order to give or giving without saving, right? Or with regards to our time, squeezing, sacrificing time for the Lord as much as as possible. The fact is you have no free time. You know, people say, well, I need, you know, my time. What, what, What are we talking about here? You don't have any free time. We're always on the clock. It's all Christ time. We need to get comfortable with way beyond the normal max of what is considered acceptable in our own day. You may question whether this is extreme and imbalanced, but all I ask of you is this, judge what I say by the standards of God's Word alone, not by the prejudice of this perishing age. Augustine's known for one of his books, City of God, where he contrasts the city of God and the city of man. And he's talking, of course, he's living in the, the period of the downgrade with the Roman Empire, and he's speaking about the church and its glory and centrality in the, uh, in the world. And we know that's true from reading our Bible. You know, in the Old Testament, you have all these big nations and empires, but really the story is about the church, Israel. In the New Testament, you have Roman Empire, huge. It gets all the history books tell you about it. But really what was important was what was going on with the church. 
And what happens is we learn to transfer our concentration from merely earthly kingdoms to Christ's eternal kingdom. That's the kingdom that will endure. All other kingdoms end up in the waste pail. They all end up as footnotes in some book. We need to sing Psalm 2 end to end in order to get our head and heart straight. So, with regards to the American empire, we long that our government had any interest in, leading its, its, in lending its civil support to the advance of God's kingdom in professing, protecting, and promoting the true religion, in upholding both tables of the law, and in contending for Christ's crown rights, which we would rejoice over. But being consumed with political engagement in a state that is an open war with the divine king is a deluded diversion, resulting in entangling alliances. The ancient church saw this clearly. Some Christians live glued to the so-called conservative news networks, kind of preoccupied with the wrangling and, you know, all that's going on within this rebellious empire, hanging their hopes there, not in the kingdom that God has said will last forever. What is this? I'll tell you. It amounts to a great frenzy over the politics of a sandcastle. It's the politics of a sandcastle. The tide will come in with the Lord's crashing waves and wash it all away, leaving no trace on the beach. And with it, all the consumption of time, energy, thought, and focus will come to nothing, nothing meaningful, nothing enduring. The believer who sees biblically that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the kingdom that history revolves around, the centerpiece of what God is doing the kingdom that will endure throughout all of the ages has done so, is doing so, will do so, and even into eternity. The believer who sees this, as the ancient church did, will hang all their hopes on an unbreakable kingdom and devote their strength to supporting whatever and whoever strives for its advance and expansion, for it shall endure. That means that foreign missions is not something tangential, but central. Something that is at the very heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a reformed church. It means that the local congregation and its growth and health and strength and ministries and so on are of a significant importance. The, 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 the expansion of the gospel and the reformed faith within our own nation. Planting more churches here as well as on the foreign field. It's advance. Why not? Why not more focus on these things? Because we can't? Because the Lord is unable? No. We have not because we ask not. And we ask not because we want not. And therefore... We will not. Often it is competing worldly interests that press out Christ's biblical priorities. And so when we turn our attention to, to the ancient church, we, we're, we're obviously we're going into foreign territory. I mean, this is like a different world for us. It's Eastern, we're more Western. 
It's, it's you know, nearly 2,000 years ago. There's lots of things that are so very different. But at the core of everything, it's the same. And the examples that these men and women set are examples that serve us well, that help us understand what it means to be a biblical Christian, living within a pagan society, living within challenges within the church, how to walk with the Lord and before the Lord and for the glory of the Lord. And so for that reason, you know, reading you know, some of the accounts of the martyrdom of Polycarp and Ignatius and Justin Martyr, all of them were martyred, Irenaeus and Tertullian, the stories of Cyprian, Athanasius, the Cappadocians, Chrysostom, Augustine, they do us a world of good. Did they have their blind spots? Yes. Did they have their failures? Yes. Did they have their errors theologically? Yes. But they're not the same as ours. And so they expose our blind spots as well. They bring into the light areas in which we are not giving the attention that we ought as well. As well. So I would challenge you to to consider reading some on, on the ancient church, some of the historical and biographical material uh, for your edification for that purpose. But I'm going to stop because I was given 45 minutes and um, I'll stop there and take questions. So thank you for your patience. I'll take questions from the floor. So if you have questions, you just want to raise your hand and ask a question. And really, this can be questions about a lot of stuff. So it doesn't have to be questions about, tell us more about, uh, you know, now Jerome, he's the one who did the Vulgate, you know, the Latin Bible. It doesn't have to be questions specifically about the ancient church. It can be things that are tangentially connected. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, yeah, canonization of, of the scripture. So, second century is pretty crucial with regards to that. Um, you, have, you have examples like with Irenaeus, you know, looking at his writings and ref, the, the, all of the books of the Bible, New Testament that he, he refers to. It comes, um, yeah, really third century is when we have it kind of formally consolidated. So, for third century, by the fourth century, it's, yeah, clear, clear what we have. Um, that's not to say that it wasn't until third, fourth century that we had a Bible, right? So, we could do, we could talk about the canon. How do we, how do we get the canon? You know, how do we know which books are canonical, etc.? But the recognition of the authority of divine scriptures, the writings of the New Testament, were recognized before then. But there was a lot of stuff going on, right? So you have, for example, during, uh, during this period, there's a guy named Marcion, and he's a heretic. And so he's, he's like uh, created this idea that the New Testament God is good, Old Testament God's bad. And then he decides, well, the, Old Test the New Testament scriptures, even they are kind of mixed. And so he trims out a whole bunch of the New Testament scriptures. And so he's forming his own section saying, look, you know, this is the Bible you need to stick with. And, um, and so the early church is having to combat that, and there's you know, all sorts of fomenting that's happening that, that enabled them to tease out the details.
Good question. Yep, other questions? Other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a good question. So we, we don't know a whole lot with regards to Timothy, but I think we have good reason to believe he was probably dead by 100, by the year 100. So John died around that time. Polycarp um, would have known John, known the Apostle John. Um, Timothy obviously was in Ephesus at one point, and, but we don't have as much detail as we do with some of the other apostles, where they went and what happened to them and how they died. Yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, some of them more than others. So, like, during this period, the Antonicene period, um, there would be less, right? There would be less uh, humongous output with, with regards to post-Nicene period. But uh, you have the Greek apologists, people like Justin Martyr, there's things you can read by him. Ignatius, there's not a, a great deal, but there's things you can read about him, more from Irenaeus, more from Tertullian. Origen was incredibly prolific, so just enormous volumes, amounts of material. And him you have to read with a lot of discernment because there's, there's problems there. But um, yeah, there's quite a bit of material. I mean, there's, you know, there's the Antonicene, post-Nicene set by Schaff. It's like, I don't know, take up this much shelf space. You know, double column volumes of the writings from that period. And that's not everything by a long shot. Paula, you had a question? Yeah, I, there, there are. Um, but you know what I think is sometimes best is actually to read the stuff directly. So, you know, if like Augustine would be a name most of you are familiar with. You could read Augustine's Confessions. Right? That's his autobiography. Basically, it gives you a flavor uh, for him, but there are, there's been even, there's, bi you know, there's a biography by a reformed person, like really for young people or young adults even, on Cyprian that's come out, Irenaeus one has come out, you know, not written by Roman Catholics or something, there's, there's, there's biographies on Chrysostom and so you could read, biographies are probably the easiest, this is a lot of, I mean, this is humongous, right, this is, this is, this requires, um, multiple courses really to cover. Um, so it's, it's better to read some of what they wrote themselves. You know, look up online Athanasius, his meditation on the Psalms, fantastic. You know, get a flavor. Read Athanasius on the Incarnation. It's a small book, very small. Just read him directly. I think it's, it's um, that's even better than just reading sort of a, okay, 200 page overview. Other questions from the floor? All right, let's see here, I've got a bunch here. Doesn't today's economic wealth stand in our way? So a very good question. Um, doesn't today's economic wealth stand in our way? Yeah, I don't think that it's wealth itself that's the main problem. Um, Philemon was wealthy, Solomon was wealthy. You know, there's, it's not the wealth itself. Um, it's our response to it, our attachment to it, our obsession with it. 
It's not to say that it's not without dangers, which is maybe the point of the question. I mean, the Lord says, you know, it's, hard, it's easier for rich men to enter the kingdom than, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for rich men to enter the kingdom. He speaks about the deceitfulness of riches and, you know, there's warnings there. So it's certainly um, appropriate to think, well, okay, is this, this an issue? But you could take away someone's wealth and they could be absolutely poverty stricken. You can go to people, you know, in the third world and their heart is hung on the things of this world. And that's all they live for and think about. So just being poor isn't solving the problem either. But it's, it's a good question. Um, could you please share your scriptural viewpoint on head covering during worship services? So this is a good question. Um, I would say, well, first of all, I would say <clears throat> the way in which we answer this question we need to avoid two errors. One is, on one side, taking our cue from current society. You know, what's, what's normal, what's popular, what's usual, so that, we shouldn't do that. Secondly, we shouldn't, we shouldn't respond by merely holding to tradition. We're to hold the biblical tradition, but it's not just tradition. If we're just holding to tradition, then we're, it's gonna end up falling off. We have to be rooted in scripture. So the passage that, as you well know, is, is 1 Corinthians 11, um, where this is laid out most fully. <clears throat> Let's see here. Quick, here's a, th give myself three minutes, if I can do it in three minutes. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you've got, um, it's clear that the context is, is worship. And you get to the end of the section there, and it says in verse 17, uh, verse 16, now if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Uh, now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. And then he goes on to the next section, which is going to talk about the Lord's Supper. If you compare that to verse 2, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember all these things. There's a parallel that's happening. He's going through ordinances of worship and what's, what's taking place here. Um, You'll notice a lot of people will say, well, this is a cultural argument. It was, it was like it was, it, was, it was appropriate for Corinth or something. It's not cultural because both, let's see, verse 3 and verse 7 and what follows verse 7 are an appeal to creation. So these are universally applicable. This is not unique to just Corinth. You also notice in verse 14 that there's an appeal to nature. So these are universal, this is something that's universally applicable. So with head coverings in verse four and verse seven, we see that men are forbidden to have head coverings. And then in verse five and six, in between those and verse 13, women are required to have head coverings. So it's describing, just as you would imagine, a head covering, something that covers the head. It's not the hair. Because when you read verses 5 and 6, it, verse 6 would make no sense if it were the hair. You know, because it's, if you're not going to be covered, then it's better, then you may as well be shaven. Well, if the hair is the covering, then that's, that doesn't make sense, right? That's, 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 um, that makes absolutely no sense at all. So when you come down to the end of this section in verse 15, and you're and, and he's, you know, he's saying in, in, in verse 15 that uh, 
But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a, a covering. There in verse 15, when you're contrasting that with what's said in verses 5 and 6, he's not now saying in verse 15, well, you know, you can get rid of the covering I was talking about in verses 5 and 6. He's speaking about something that's additional. So, the argument from nature with regards to a woman having long hair and a man having short hair is in support. It's saying, it's saying in essence, look, this long hair is an indication that there is um, a distinction between men and women, even in nature. And so it's sort of a supporting argument for verses 5 and 6 that the head covering, which is additional to the hair, is in line with what even scripture, with, with what even nature teaches. And then, it, you know, he makes this argument about women not praying or, or prophesying with their, with their head being uncovered. And so people try to run with that. The, the point is that praying and prophesying is a function of authority. And the head covering is a symbol of subjection. And so a man can't have his head covered, right? He, he's, if he's praying and, and prophesying, that would be contradictory. He would be, having, he, he would be having a symbol of subjection while he's exercising authority. And so he's saying that would be a contradiction. Well, then if a woman were to pray and prophesy with her hair uncovered, he's, he's, or if she were to pray and prophesy, she would have to remove her head covering. And that's wrong. It's wrong for her to pray and prophesy, as chapter 14 says, let women be silent in the church, women, if you have you know, questions, ask your husband at home, and so on and so forth. And so, the point is that it would require her to, to move her head covering, which isn't appropriate in light of what he's saying in verses 5 and 6. So, it's not incompatible with chapter 14. And then, of course, you have the, my three minutes are up, but you have in verse 10, the reference to the angels as well. He says that they need to be covered because the angels, what's that all about? The angels attend the public worship of God. Our worship takes place before the throne of heaven. New Testament worship is heaven-centered. Transactions of worship are taking place in the presence of God. Angels are in attendance. They desire to peer into the things that regard the gospel and so on and so forth. And um, in public worship, all glory is to be covered except for the Lord's glory. And the woman's glory is her hair. And so that has to be covered. And so he's speaking about offense, as it were, to the angels who are in attendance and, and so on. I haven't done a very good job. I'll try to do it in three minutes. But you get the gist of what, what the Bible says with regards to head coverings. Women should have head coverings on, period. That's what the Bible teaches. We believe it because the Bible says it. Do you have a sense... Uh, what these church fathers would say to us if they could see our situation today? Uh, it's a good question. The, you know, they'd be, best, they'd be surprised by a lot of things. Uh, well, part of what I think they would say is what I've kind of given in this lecture. Some of the applications that I was drawing out, I think, reflect the kind of things that they would say. You know, they would say, it's strange to see the church not living for another world, actually living as if this world is everything, not being Christ-centered, not um, in love with His Word and soaked in it, not 
you know, seeking first his kingdom and so on. They would, they would find, I think, the, in the West anyway, the dilution of the Christian identity. Um, they would find that, that uh, objectionable. They would find that alarming, I think. Next question, how could we develop the self-denying faith possessed by the early church generations? How can we develop self-denying faith? So if, if we're in a state of grace, if we are you know, a Christian and um, uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I think that the answer, so like Rome will say, you know, They'll have all these physical things, you know, in the Middle Ages that they would do that would, you know, kind of afflict the body and wear coarse clothing and do all of this. They're misguided on this point. The way to self-denial is not in the first instance saying no to a bunch of practical things. It begins in the heart with saying yes. It, it begins in the heart with a sight of Christ, of His glory, of, of, of full persuasion that what matters most is all that pertains to his name, his kingdom, the advance of it, seeing the beauty of that kingdom, seeing the glory that's going to come. I mean, you stop and you think, okay, eternity, right? It hurts our heads. I remember my oldest son, when he was about three, he came to me. We were talking family worship about eternity. He came back later in the day and he said, Dad, when I think about eternity, it makes my head hurt. I said, well, that's good, son. That's, that's what it should do. You think, okay, trillions upon trillions of years, and you're no sooner to the end than you were when you started, right? That, the, the expanse of eternity, the, the, the enormity of eternity. And then you come back to life and you say, okay, 70, 80, 90 years in this world, literally nothing. So it's irrational to think anything other than the fact that we're not made for this world. If, the, if eternity is, is where we're going to spend, you know, where, where, where we're going to be, then the, the small period of time in this world is so incredibly brief. We're not made for this world. And so you're meditating upon these sorts of things. And so when you begin to soak in, in you know, love for Christ, gratitude for Him, desire to please Him, desire to do all you can for Him, then that fuels saying, no to this and no to that, no to these other things that would be self-ingrandizing, self-satisfying, you know, our own interests and so on and so forth. Really, we're always, whenever we say yes to anything, we're saying no to something else. If you say, yes, I'll go to the store, it means no, you can't do something else. You can't mow the lawn. You can't do both at the same time. And so the key is to be saying yes to the right things the things that matter most, things that belong to the Lord. Would you consider a Christian uh, affecting politics in, uh, in the same importance as mission work? Would you consider a Christian um, yeah, affecting politics to be as important as mission work? Is it just a matter of where God leads? When you say these men on the board had errors, how significant were they? All right, so those are two questions. Would you consider Christian affecting politics to be of the same importance as mission work? Clearly, no. I don't. So I'm not Kyperian, sorry. 
I mean, they, they love this sort of thing. Um, I don't think so. I think that mission work is far more important. Is there a place for um, Christian influence in politics? Of course there is. We want all governments everywhere all over the world to pledge their allegiance to Christ and to use their civil field to advance Christ's cause and, and kingdom. But when you ask that question, you're asking it in the context of the present circumstances where we have governments that are arch enemies of Jesus Christ and at war with everything that belongs to him. So I think it's ridiculous to say that participating in that would be the same as mission work. Clearly not. Mission work is immediately um, connected with, with the eternal kingdom that lasts forever. Does God lead men into fields where they can have influence in these other areas? Of course, of course it, that's true, but that's not the question. Secondly, when you say these men on the board had heirs, how significant were they? Some of them were really terrible, like really terrible. Uh, they had significant heirs in yeah, their views of the sacraments, their views of church. I mean, we have the rise of hierarchy in the early days. It was like, you know, what you would think of as decentralized Presbyterian Reformed church government. And then you have the rise of bishops and then ultimately archbishops and all sorts of things. There's lots of problems there. Um, uh, some of them with regards to their, their interpretation of scripture is fanciful and, you know, bizarre at times, the way in which they approach their interpretation of scripture. There's, there's problems with regards to the gospel, you know, doctrines of salvation with, with, with some of them where it's unclear at least, are not as clear as we would like. So there are significant problems, which is why, you know, they have problems, we have problems. They have to be read with, with discernment. Hastening on here. Can you tell the story of, of Julian the Apostate? So he, he was actually a nephew of Constantine, and he grew up in a home that was not not like Nicene, Nicaea orthodoxy, but within what we could call broader Christendom. He, when he was about 20, he went off the rails and he started st studying Hellenistic philosophy. He became fascinated with the, the old Roman world and its gods, the glory days of Rome. Uh, he began to view that the introduction of Christianity, which had risen, as stripping Rome of its glory, that it was sort of on the downgrade because of that. He, uh, he became very hostile in persecuting the church. Interesting, he actually went to school with Gregory Nazianzus. So they were, they were actually in Athens together, I think it was, and, um, and knew each other. So Gre Gregory Nazianzus was uh, one of the Cappadocians. These three are from central Turkey, very important figures. Um, yeah, but then so he's like, he's bringing back the Roman gods, he's trying to get rid of Christianity, but he's an apostate, he's forsaken the Christian faith. And then there's a story which is, it's hard to tell if it's apocryphal or not. He's fighting the Persians and he ends up getting wounded and ultimately he's going to, ultimately he dies. So his reign was brief. The Lord's cut him down. But on his deathbed, whether this is, you know, legend or history, I can't tell you. But he says, he says on his deathbed, um, what are the words? Um, Thou hast triumphed, O Galilean, 
something along those lines. So referring to Christ, saying, you know, the Lord's triumphed. You know, Christianity is going to come back. He's going to die, and it'll be restored, and it was, and so on and so forth. But that's in a nutshell his story. Sad story, but a story that's been repeated throughout history, as you well know. We see it in Reformation era as well. Um, how do we reconcile the demands of our so-called secular calling with the call to spend and be spent for Christ's kingdom? This is a very good question. I love this question. How do we, how do we reconcile the demands of our so-called secular calling with the call to spend and be spent for, for Christ's kingdom? So I think there's a couple things here. Uh, one, in our quote-unquote secular calling, the job that the Lord's given to us, you know, Colossians teaches us, Ephesians teaches us, we get it elsewhere. Where do you, uh, where, where to think in terms of having one primary master? You know, when he's talking to the slaves in, in Ephesians uh, or in Colossians, and he's talking about their relationship to their master, he tells them, don't do it with eye service, don't do it serving men. Do it with a view as unto the Lord. Look at your capital M master. So that in the workplace, your mind and heart is on your heavenly master. And in the exercise of the responsibilities you're doing to the glory of God as a Christian, with Christian, you know, fruitfulness, it's with a view to not just your paycheck, but ultimately to heavenly rewards. And so you're using the position there as a witness in your you know, speech and attitude and whatever else, but you're serving ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ there. So there's that, but then, you know, so much we have beyond, we have so much of life beyond that. And how do we use that? What you might think of as discretionary time. And that's a big question. You know, how is that time used for the Lord? Is it used for me or is it used for the Lord outside of work? And it's incredible, I mean, in, in terms of just even modern bi Christian biography, the things that men have accomplished and been able to do outside of their normal job for the kingdom, overwhelmingly huge things. And so there has to be at work a view of the big picture in terms of Christ and the kingdom, but then in life as a whole outside of work, we need to be harnessing our time and energies, resources, whatever, for the, for the kingdom there as well. Um, next question. When the Bible talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, what is included in that? Persecution only or suffering that comes because of service or obedience or, or any suffering? So this is an excellent question. This, this question comes from Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So I would say that it actually includes all suffering because all suffering is service to Christ. So if in the Lord's providence he puts you in an accident, you lose both legs. The Lord in his providence has, has brought all of this to pass and that suffering is an arena of service to Christ. And so we have a share, fellowship, 
communion with him in, 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 in all suffering. So obviously persecution seems, seems obvious, which is the point of the question. But beyond that, we actually hold fellowship with Christ. Little sufferings, big sufferings, all types of sufferings with your health, family, relationships, losses, difficulties, whatever it is, we actually are able to hold fellowship with the Lord in those sufferings as, as well. And we're actually, we're actually serving Him in those sufferings. And we're actually getting glory for the Lord in those sufferings. So, you know, Job wasn't persecuted. Job wasn't like being uh, persecuted for his Christian faith. He wasn't, you know, it wasn't the government that was coming after him or something else. But he was serving Christ. And the Lord was gathering glory to him in ways that Job had no clue. Job could not see. But the Lord was glorifying himself and shutting the mouth of the devil through the suffering of Job. And so the Lord grants reward, not only for our service, not only for our sanctification, but also there's reward for our suffering, coming under the suffering that the Lord calls us to, whatever type that might be. All right, other questions from the floor? It's quarter after nine, which is longer than you all had planned on. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of coming. Thank you for giving me some time. Delight to, to be with you. Why don't we stand and close with prayer? Almighty God in heaven, we give thanks for the history of thy church and for the works of God, thy works, which we behold and all of the unfolding events that thou hast brought to pass for the glory of thine own name. O Lord, we rejoice that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is unconquerable, undestroyable. And when all the world has used all of their power, they've been unable to break it. And it is, O Lord, to thy praise and glory, for thou hast said that not even the gates of hell shall withstand the church, and that thou would be with her and never leave her or forsake her, and preserve and keep her. And O Lord, we pray, grant to us help that we would be those who live in the fear of God, that we would walk in passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek first his kingdom. Give us, O Lord, hearts that live for another world. <clears throat> that pour ourselves into what lasts forever. Help us to benefit, to, to, to receive what's been passed down to us from the fathers. And give us grace, O Lord, that we might likewise pass that same testimony down to the generations that follow us. If we ask it all in Jesus' name.